Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our discussion on the New Testament epistles. And here, before jumping into the book of Colossians next week, we have a really fascinating discussion on the phenomena of letters in the New Testament. Here, the team will be discussing the function of letters, letter writing as an activity that kings do, and in general, the theological underpinnings of epistolary literature. There is still time to register for Alistair Roberts' upcoming Theopolis workshop on the Tabernacle and the Temple. I have a link down there in the show notes if you'd like to sign up for that course. And we do have several other events coming up as well. Our March Intensive with Wes Baker on missions, and a regional course here in Birmingham, Alabama with Peter Lightheart on creation. We really hope that you enjoyed this discussion, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing the phenomena of letters in the New Testament. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background. Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode. Uh, Jeff Myers, who is usually part of our podcast team, is occupied with uh, pastoral concerns in his home church. He'll return and be with us uh, in the next in the next recording session, we trust. Uh, we're beginning a new series as of last episode. Uh, we're going to do several months in New Testament epistles. Eventually, we're going to get to the epistle of James. Jeff Myers will be the expert there because he's just finished a commentary on the epistle of James, which he has been working on for a couple of decades on and off. He's taught on James a lot, preached on James, and uh, has some very insightful things to say about what's going on in the in the epistle of James. Before that, we're going to spend uh, a couple of months working through Paul's letter to the Colossians. And uh, last time we got started by talking about some of the developments in Pauline studies over the past several decades and the, what they contribute to our understanding of Paul. And today what we want to do is uh, talk about Paul and then also talk about Colossians and some of the issues that uh, are raised by the this particular letter of Paul. Let me throw out a question or an observation to begin with. I mentioned toward the end of the last the last episode, the complication or the difficulty of trying to formulate or find coherence in Paul's teaching given the nature of the sources that we have from Paul directly. We have Luke's account of Paul in Acts uh, and a number of lengthy speeches from Paul, and we have an account of many activities of Paul in the book of Acts. Uh, and then we have a collection of letters, some disputed letters of Paul, but we have a collection of, a, a collection of uh, epistles from Paul. For scholars, that makes it difficult to formulate a kind of summary of Pauline theology, because he seems to be speaking, di- he does speak differently in different contexts. He used different kinds of different kinds of arguments. He used different terminology in different kinds of contexts. But I want to step back a step beyond that and just ask the question of what, what should we make of this phenomena of letters in the New Testament? We have, when we have a few examples of letters in the Old Testament, mostly letters that are issued by kings or emperors, and they're used as uh, instruments of rule, instruments of rule for good and ill. David sends a letter to Joab, telling Joab how to make sure that Uriah gets killed. And Jezebel sends letters around 
to the elders to uh, accuse Naboth so that she can open up Ahab's seizure of Naboth's vineyard. Or you have uh, kings, emperors sending letters of authorization, as, as we do in the uh, the books of book of Ezra, where there's this correspondence going back and forth between the Jews who are back in Jerusalem and the officials in in the capital of the Persian Empire, and finally the the Persian emperor issues a letter that authorizes the Jews to continue the work that they've been given. So there's an exercise of authority that's done at a distance by those letters. We also have letters in some of the prophetic books. Jeremiah writes a couple of letters, a famous letter to the exiles, giving them instructions about how they're to go about. Their life in exile, supposed to settle down, recognize that it's going to be a long exile. It's not going, they're not going to come back immediately. And he gives them instructions about how they're to carry out. But I think it's, it's significant when you think about the priest-king prophet sequence that we find in the Bible. It's significant that we have uh, kings and prophets issuing letters. I don't know that there are any examples of letters that are given by, by priests. But then there's nothing like the concentration of letters that we have in the New Testament. So my basic question is, what do you make of the fact that Paul's communications take this form rather than some other form? And what does that mean about the nature of the New Testament? Why suddenly this, uh, this kind of bursting of uh, epistolary literature, what's the, what's the, what are the implications of that? What's the source of that? Just to add in an extra dimension to that, Peter, I mean, Paul's um, outpouring of epistles isn't just a break from the um, Old Testament um, in, in terms of the, uh, the format it takes, but also from the teaching and the life of Jesus. I mean, Jesus never um, wrote uh, anything, committed anything to um, writing, and a main um, vehicle of his teaching was obviously the, the parable, which actually none of the New Testament apostles or, or teachers seem to have um, taken up as a style of teaching. No one thought, you know, th- this is the um, vehicle that Jesus has endorsed and is the way in which we're to do um, Christian teaching, uh, but we went out in a in a different direction. Perhaps you could say that James is is the most Jesus-like um, in, its, uh, in its style, you know, numerous connections with, say, the Sermon on, on the Mount, but in, in general, it's it's very different, and so um, I guess I'm just adding that element in that there's a break not only from the Old Testament, but but also from from Jesus's own way of teaching. I think this is one of the ways in which reading the um, epistles against the backdrop of the Book of Acts can be very illuminating. Um, within the context of the first century church, you have a lot of different churches in different parts of the Roman Empire that are being bound together in a network, messages traveling between them on a fairly fairly regular basis. There are some key hubs of communication. You have places like Antioch or Jerusalem, Rome, Ephesus, Corinth, um, and a few other sites like this. And Christians in these locations would be showing hospitality to Christians from other parts of the world who'd be going through on their travels. There would be the sharing of news and information, and the epistle as a medium seems to be integral to this sort of network. We tend to regard epistles merely as text, and the fact that they are letters is fairly incidental. Uh, As we experience them, they're just um, holders of information, and we're almost trying to extract that information from the um, epistolary form 
in which they're given to us, imaginatively resituating them within um, an abstract text. But for the early church, Paul is establishing a sort of holy internet, as um, Michael Thompson has described. Movement of information from one church to another is encouraged by the medium of the epistle. So Paul sends an epistle to one church, and then that church is expected in its... uh, read that epistle, copy it on and to pass it on to some other church and to circulate it within its own networks. And as a result, you have this knitting together of many different churches in many parts of the world and the sense of a unity formed by this um, strong and active network is a practice that corresponds with Paul's theology of the church. If you don't actually have these practices of sharing information and sharing letters, you don't actually have a sense of the unity that exists in in the church. It doesn't become a concrete expression. And so at the beginning and end of every New Testament epistle, you can get a sense of this. You see the long lists of names, the long lists, or the lists of the people who are sending it, the people who are sending their greetings to others, the ways in which news of one church and or the ministry of Paul is being passed on through this letter. And through all of this, I think we get, first of all, a sense of how integrated the early church was, which strengthens our belief in its testimony that nothing in the early church happened in the corner. Things traveled, news traveled fairly widely and fairly swiftly. And so there was a far deeper integration to the core teaching of the apostles People would be no more than a couple of um, a couple of levels of distance from any particular apostle. There would always be these personal connections between them, and as a result, you have a church that is much stronger, and the epistle form is part of the the sinew that holds the church together as a body. I think that's the fact that these epistles circulated. We know that uh, from, among other things, from the very end of Colossians itself, the fact that these letters circulated and are known not just by the churches that were our designated recipients, but by other churches. So that that's there's an interesting interplay of a kind the kind of intimacy that a letter suggests um, in the the old some of the Old Testament examples that I gave. Letters are are a for, a proper form of communication because they're secretive. You could have a you could have a private conference. David could have had a private conference with Joab, but Joab's out on the field, so the only way he can communicate secretively is uh, uh, through letter. And secretly, secretively and accurately, he gives exactly the instructions that he wants. So there's a kind of intimacy that's implied by this by this medium. But the fact that these so so that's part of the part of the phenomena phenomenology of Paul sending letters to these different churches that establishes a kind of, as you said a personal connection. But when all of the different churches hear the same letter from Paul, uh, there's this shared as you say a shared body of information. There's a shared body of teaching. They're all hearing not Paul's voice, but they're hearing Paul's words in different voices. Which is again um, the fact that the letters circulate is part of his apostolic effort to bind the church into one international body across the empire. Filling out that point a bit, we could consider the way that Paul's theology of the church with one body and many members and the representation of the one gift of the spirit in the manifold gifts of the spirit is played out through the epistles. 
So in receiving an epistle from Paul, you were conscripted into a giving process. That gift of truth in the epistle was not for your sake alone, but for the sake you were given it in order to share it on to others. And with that, you're sharing your example, positive and negative. People would think about the Corinthian church when they were reading the Corinthian letter, even if they were not in Corinth, and they would think about the positive and very negative aspects of the Corinthians example. And through all of this, there is a very practical outworking of what Paul teaches about the church, that every single part of the church has its own contribution to give to the whole. So it's not as if Paul is writing just to one. Paul is writing all his letters to Rome, and then Rome distributes them among the church. He's writing to so many different locations from so many different locations, and then those are all being shared around. And there's a, a sort of ecclesiology being outworked in that, but also implied in it, of a church with many different gifts and members and not one member held over above all the others, but a context of mutual recognition, mutual service, and mutual ministry. Alistair, I wonder if you could also think about just the the, um, narrative flow of the Book of Acts and Paul's um, own conversion in a similar light. We have Paul um, told that, you know, insofar as he is persecuting the the members of uh, Jesus's body he, he's persecuting Christ himself so there is that theme of um, union um, of, of union with Christ ground into Paul's conversion experience and then sort of zooming out we obviously have the Pentecost event and the way in which as the book of Acts um, unfolds we don't get sort of subsequent um, Pentecosts rather we get sort of reverberations and echoes of that initial um, event and we get people incorporated into the body of Christ in that way and so we constantly get people returning to Jerusalem and and we get things established and grounded there and as people are uh, saved they don't just become these standalone communities but they are deliberately in God's purposes put in contact with the rest of the church and so Paul was put in touch with Ananias and Cornelius with Peter and and so forth and so I wonder if exactly the sort of thing that you're talking about being established by this network of um, epistles and their circulation is sort of just told out in in the um, uh, in the early history of the book of Acts. Very much so and I think what we see there um, can be connected to Paul's work for the poor of the saints in Jerusalem So when Paul's teaching about the union of Jew and Gentile, at the same time, he's collecting for the poor saints in Jerusalem from Gentiles. We get this at the very end of the book of Romans in chapter 15. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. What we have there is a recognition of the importance of a practical demonstration of the unity of the church, not just in abstract theology, but in this very clear integration of the church through these exchanges of of gifts, of messages of truth in these epistles, of ministers who are traveling from place to place, being given from one church to another. And 
that connection of Acts with the epistles helps us to ground Paul's teaching. Paul's teaching is always connected with practice, and it's always connected with the solidity of community. So when we're reading the final chapter of Romans, for instance, and all this long list of names and households, that is not something to be topped and tailed, as it were. We remove the greetings at the beginning, and we remove the greetings at the end, and then we have the pure vegetable of biblical teaching. And that's not how it works, that all that concrete stuff at the beginning and the end, all the naming, is an important part of what Paul's doing. It's the practical task of building the church and connecting these places together. And that ministry of bringing Jerusalem into correspondence with Rome is literally achieved through this sort of correspondence. That's all really helpful. Let me step back and um, suggest some theological perspectives on all of this based on some of the things I was saying about uh, Old Testament letter writing. See what, you, see what you think of this. Point number one is that Paul kind of functions in a semi-prophetic role in the churches. In, the sense, in this sense, prophets are commissioned to scrutinize and evaluate the condition of Israel. They engage in, uh, Meredith Klein describes it as a kind of prophetic, prophetic surveillance. And then they, they present the Lord's evaluation of Israel's performance of the covenant. Are they keeping covenant or are they not keeping covenant? And those, those evaluations come with warnings, uh, sometimes with promises, but often warnings about uh, what, what will happen if Israel continues. And it seems like Paul is in that kind of pro- prophetic vein. So there's a, uh, there's an analogy between the letters that we find in the prophetic books of the Old Testament and the kind of thing that Paul's doing in his letters, which is often evaluation after the fact. There's some conflict or crisis in a church, and he's coming in to, to try to clean things up. Point number two is, that again, thinking about the Old Testament as uh, letter writing as an activity of kings. Should we think of the epistles of Paul and the other apostles? Uh, are the amanuenses for King Jesus, who are their under the inspiration of the Spirit, they are delivering Jesus' messages from a distance to his people. And so they, I mean, as, as apostles, they have the kind of, they're plenipotentiaries. They have, they have the full authority. They bear the full authority of the one who commissioned them. And their letters have that kind of royal function. These are, these are letters ultimately from Jesus. I mean, Revelation 2 and 3 indicates this with, with John's letters. It's, it's from Jesus himself speaking to evaluate the church and to commend it, to warn it, to give promises and so on through the agency of, of John. So it seems like Paul's letters function in that sense, in that within that royal vein, uh, that royal context too. And the last thing is that there's obviously a dialectic of absence and presence going on in the reality of letter writing. Uh, something that Paul plays off of in Second uh, Corinthians at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 3, he talks about uh, the, the Corinthians themselves as being a kind of epistle written by the Spirit. They are in their lives, they are their transformed lives. They are themselves a kind of announcement of the power of the Spirit and the, the coming of the kingdom. But Paul distinguishes in, that, in the context of describing that. He distinguishes between the letters that he writes, uh, which the Corinthians considered to be, you know, strong and powerful and his personal presence, which is much less impressive in the, in the Corinthian view. So there's this dialectic of presence and absence in 
letter writing. You're you're exerting your presence. You're intervening from a distance into a situation, which uh, it it feels like there's an analogy there between the and there's kind of an eschatological uh, tension there. It's the it's the risen and ascended Christ in His real absence, who is present to His people by His Spirit and through the Spirit Spirit guided words of the apostles. So there's this kind of eschatological presence absence that's at work. Reactions to those thoughts. Just trying to summarize a bit, Peter. So you're saying there's a, a continuity between, on the one hand, the um, prophetic literature of the Old Testament in that you've got these um, specifically directed um, epistles which address specific sins and and go on to give various promises or, or threats and, and the like. Um, and then sort of on top of that, this, this uh, comparison with the the letters sent by kings, um, in insofar as that they're um, they've got this seal, they've got this uh, stamp of royal authority, sort of going going out with them. Are, are those sort of two things you're talking about um, in in tandem with one another? Yeah, in tandem. Not not really. I'm not uh, really suggesting an integration. There probably is a way to integrate those two points, but yeah, I'm thinking about them in tandem. And and the, again, I'm trying to trying to reflect on the phenomena of the Old Testament and where letters appear and who writes them and what the purposes are in the Old Testament. And then suggested that might be a way of thinking about the purposes of letters in the New Testament. One aspect of letters that I think we see a glimpse of in 2 Corinthians 10, 9 and 10 is the contrast between physical presence and letters is one in which um, the letters may be the more effective. The letters may be the weightier and stronger. Um, that contrast between Paul's physical presence and his writing is one in which his physical presence comes off the worse. When we want to have an impact upon someone, often it can be more effective to write it down to them in a letter format than to present it to them directly in speech. So when you're speaking to someone directly, it's very easy for them to brush off what you're saying by reference to yourself. So Paul can say something in the presence of the Corinthians and they can brush it off. He doesn't have a very um, prepossessing presence to him. He doesn't have the sort of strength and eloquence of rhetoric that you'd hope for from a public speaker and thinker. And so you can dismiss his words. But if you just have his letters, it's very hard to brush that off to quite the same degree. You have to deal with the actual words upon the page and they stay with you. They don't just disappear. And that I think is one of the ways in which that, that contrast between presence and absence can play out in sometimes surprising ways. It's not always the case that the physical presence is the stronger. Often it is precisely as we're left to wrestle with a word without the ability of deflecting or displacing our response to it by focusing upon a person who's present in front of us, that that word will have the greater effect. And so increasingly, as we talk in contexts where words are not inert, they're very live, and they're immediately um, thrown against us by people who are present to, present to us, we actually end up talking about the words a lot less, and we become a lot more focused upon the person's. Yeah, great point. And you know, probably everyone who has written a book has had this experience of uh, meeting somebody who's very excited to to uh, 
uh, meet the author of a particular book and then finds the author extremely disappointing in person uh, in comparison with the, the apparent excitement that the book provoked. So yeah, th that's, a, that's a really good point. And the other point that I want to highlight from what you said, Alistair, is the fact that the letter has a permanence. It's a permanent presence in the, in the church. We don't know how these letters circulate. My guess would be that if a letter arrived that was going to move on elsewhere, that copies would be made so that the, the churches could have them to consult and repeat and listen to again, that they wouldn't, they wouldn't disappear. Where Paul is one place at one time, uh, the letters end up being multiple places and multiple times. So th there, there's a kind of, and again, uh, you can pour over the words of Paul fixed on a page in a way that you can't pour over them when he's speaking. So yeah, that the permanent, the permanent record is, I think, a crucial part of this. I think that's all really helpful. And I totally agree that there is this contrast between the um, personal presence and, and then the um, absence and, and sending a letter. Um, and yet at the same time, I think there is a sense in which the letter and the person are kind of somehow more combined than we tend to um, think of in today's society. You know, um, I guess if I get a book from someone these days or an email is even more sort of dramatic, you know, there's almost nothing physical to the email. Or if I buy a book by someone, it's probably never touched their hands. They've probably never had anything to do with the um, production of it, you know, and, and yet here in receiving a letter that there, there just is something more physical about it. it it's written by Paul's own hands um, often, and sometimes has hallmarks of, of that, you know, he has touched it and given it to someone. And then that person has like, say read it out publicly um, to the church where I go to. And, and so th there's been sort of just something um, more physical and more performative uh, about the whole process and um i think that's that's just important to bear in mind the way in which these things come out of people's lives very personally and the way in which paul's uh letters are backed up by his whole person and life and ministry and miracles and and so forth and um you know i i think sometimes scholars these days and i was talking to someone just last week who made this this very point um can kind of overemphasize or overestimate the the power of written word purely as just sort of a, a written abstract thing. You know, a, a scholar can think you know there are bad things going on out out there um, and, and bad arguments and ideologies that need to be addressed. And so the solution is a book. And so they write a book and then are all puzzled when the world hasn't changed. And I think, well, why are people still making these arguments? I, I've refuted these in a, in a 600 page tome. Has no one read my book? You know, and um, books obviously need to be promoted by people who go around and, and, and talk about them and, and, and give um, talks off the back of them and, and show the fruit of them in a, in a life lived. And I think it's a, very real sense in which uh, Paul's epistles had that backing um, and a way in which sometimes the, the the book in today's world is slightly detached, has a, a sort of a diso uh, disassociation from the author, which an epistle never did. Yeah, I figure that uh, if I publish a book that it magically solves whatever problem I'm addressing in the book. I don't 
and yeah, and I'm puzzled by the fact that the problem continues to exist. Um, okay, there, I, there are exceptions. Know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, and I, I think that that should happen regardless of whether, you know, I promote the book or try to get it into people's hands. It's just the fact that it exists out there should have the magical effect of dispelling the ignorance. Uh, <laughs> one, last, one last question I want to raise about the, just the phenomenon of Paul's letters as letters, and that is the fact that we have a collection of letters in the New Testament, um, Paul's letters, and then we have a collection of what are known as Catholic epistles from a variety of other writers. Uh, you can look at the epistles as a whole as a collection, a large collection from a variety of writers. That's another, again, a, another, that's an ancient phenomenon. That's not new. Uh, Greek and Roman writers compiled their personal correspondence for various reasons, sometimes as a kind of record of biography, their biography, sometimes as a, as a form of philosophical treatise, you have the author take the position of a teacher or some kind of authority figure, a father, and he writes letters to his son that are intended to be not just letters personally to his son, but intend to be instructive to disciples of this particular philosopher, that kind of, that kind of thing. So any thoughts on the effect of having a collection of Paul's letters in the New Testament or collection of epistles in the New Testament. What, what do you think the aims and results of that, that reality are? I mean, to state something, I guess, fairly obvious, you know, we don't have at least nothing that comes to mind. You know, we don't have um, prophecies where they have been sent. Uh, I'm talking about the Old Testament now, prophetic books, which have been sent to two different audiences. And so we can compare, let's say, what, Haggai said to one group of people to what he said to a different group of people. Um, by contrast, in, in terms of Paul's corpus, we can make those comparisons. And so we can see, you know, did he address um, a, an issue di very differently in one context compared to another? Um, or, or are there similarities? And and that's just, I guess, one very basic impact of, of having that whole corpus uh, at our disposal. And so the epistles become a manifestation of what Paul says about his, his posture in mission, which is that he becomes all things to all men that he may save some. So he's willing to speak in a way that uh, addresses the particular issues in the particular church. So that it's a manifestation of an, of an apostolic, I'm not reducing it uh, by calling it a strategy, but a, an apostolic uh, strategy. Mm. It's also the way that the, body or the corpus of Paul's letters more generally arises out of the church's communication with itself. As we were discussing earlier, the fact that he's sending these letters to specific churches who are then expected to circulate them more widely, the result of that having happened for a while is that they would collect other letters with them. So there would be the um, letter to the first letter to the Corinthians, and then that would be sent, uh, say, to Rome, and it would collect their letter with it, and then that would be sent on to somewhere else. And this gathering together of the gifts of the church that are the common possession, the representation of the one gift of the Spirit's truth in the apostolic teaching, then is enjoyed as the common possession, but as that which has been given from all these different members. And so it, the corpus of the letters is a physical expression of initially, an initially physical expression, and to some extent still a physical expression 
of the unity of the church that was achieved through the apostolic teaching. And that mutual recognition of churches, that mutual recognition of truth is expressed in these many different um, churches contributing the letters that they have received to this larger collection. And another thing I think that is important, if we just had a corpus that was abstract theology, it would, it would affect us very differently. And I think often we're trying to make Pauline letters into abstract theology. We're trying to abstract them from their addressed character, that Paul is speaking to a particular congregation and speaking to them in a way that exhorts them to um, praise or to thanksgiving or to um, repentance, whatever it is. That addressed character is one that implicates the hearer in the message in a way that abstract theology never does. When you're reading abstract theology, you can stand almost as a spectator relative to it. But when you're receiving a letter, and a letter that is addressed, even if not directly to you, but indirectly to you as a member of the church, you can't abstract yourself from it. It is something that's speaking to you. And so when Paul, given this example a few weeks ago in our question and answers, when you read the beginning of the um, epistle to the Ephesians and Paul's talking about um, election, he's not talking about election as such, that, that God has elected a certain group of individuals. He's talking to, uh, to people that God has elected and encouraging them to think about themselves that way and to praise the Lord with him, to engage in this act of praise that he has um, expressed within his letter to them. And that is a very different sort of rhetorical act than just communicating some abstract truth about an unnamed body of individuals. I think those are uh, really, really helpful points, Alistair. The, I mean, the, you, you enter in this kind of I-thou relationship with the apostle that, that a more abstracted uh, rhetoric or a more abstracted genre would not have. Um, let, I, I said that with the collection question was going to be the last question I was going to ask, but I, I want to ask uh, this too. I, I'm glad we spent this much time on this question because I don't think it's I haven't seen it deeply reflected on, and I, I could very well just be missing the literature on this, but do you all know literature about the kind of theological underpinnings of epistolary literature in the New Testament? Who's, who's written on that, if anybody, that's been, that you're, you found helpful? I'm not aware of anyone. I've mentioned Michael B. Thompson's article, The Holy Internet, in The Gospel for All Christians, by Richard Bork, edited by Richard Borkham as one that really stimulated my thinking on the subject. Um, I've just found that there are so many aspects that I've never seen people reflect upon sufficiently. Even getting back to one of your earlier points, Peter, this idea of the kingly character of letters and the way in which letters are often preparing for a journey. Paul's often sending letters ahead of him before his physical presence. Uh, and the letter is a preparation for judgment, that Paul is about to come on the scene. He wants to make th sure that things are right beforehand, prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to come in judgment in the form of his minister, the apostle Paul, and the church needs to be prepared for that. There's a sort of mini um, apocalypse that's going to happen when Paul comes on the scene. And the letter is, much as we see in the beginning of the book of Revelation, it's that first warning shot 
before the Lord is going to come and to judge his church. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And in uh, in 2 Corinthians, the passage that I cited earlier, the, what Paul contrasts is the present is his letter as opposed to his parousia in Corinth. When he talks about his own arrival or his own presence there, that's the word that he use, uses, which uh, obviously parousia has a variety of different meanings. I can't imagine Paul's using that without some sense that this is some small coming of the Lord when Paul arrives in Corinth, the Lord comes. And the letter is a preparation for that. It's kind of a, it's kind of a John the Baptist that goes on ahead. Just picking up on that idea of the kingly sense of a letter, I wonder if there's a helpful comparison that you can make, again, with Old Testament prophecies, in the sense that the genre of the Old Testament prophecy, I guess, comes to prominence in the whole period of, of, of the kings. Um, although we have the odd mention of a prophecy um, in Judges, there's no sort of prophetic literature written at, at that time. And really, as I see it, at least, those prophetic books um, are almost a challenge to the king's authorities. You know, there are these earthly kings, but it, it is the word of God that has authority in that power, in that um, context, and that has power to move on and to shape the course of history in a way in which kings decrees don't. And I guess the counterpart then to that, let's say, is uh, the book of Acts being the, the fabric against which we fit these um, epistles. And the epistles then really being a, a you know a, a counteractive to uh, the rulers described in Acts, you know, that they are making their uh, decisions and rulings and trying to bind the word of God and, and persecute. And yet it's the epistles that have uh, that power and that uh, endurance and that ability to shape history, which none of those earthly rulers in, in the book of Acts have. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.